Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Woodside Community Church. Those who are here and those who are joining us online and Facebook, please take out your Bible and open to page 991 in the, if you have the Pew Bible, the letter of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And it's also printed at the beginning of the outline in the bulletin. It will be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The greatest persecutor of the new faith in Jesus became its greatest promoter. The foremost sinner emerged as the most eminent saint. How can a change so complete of such great magnitude and so undeniably true occur in a man or a woman? Could such a change be repeated today? As we continue in our congregation's study of Paul's first letter to Timothy, I'm very glad that I have responsibility today to present before you the particular section of text we're about to read, because its content has such broad extent and application that every person listening today, whether in person or online, should be able to find points of contact with it. So I ask you to make a genuine effort to seek to understand this text properly and to interact with it honestly. The Apostle Paul personally founded many of the first Christian communities in the Gentile nations of the Mediterranean Sea Basin, which comprised the known world of early Western civilization. As the years passed and time grew nearer for Paul to be offered up as a sacrifice to the cause of the Lord he had embraced, he took great care to see that those churches were established on a good foundation of proper doctrine and proper life practices with qualified leadership. Even during the apostles' lifetime, false doctrines, unqualified, and even disqualified leadership self-appointed apostles, and all manner of sinful practice and decline were besetting the pristine character of the churches he had founded. So in this letter to Timothy, Paul's spiritual son of faith and co-laborer, who would be overseeing these churches, Paul gave instruction for how to create a secure foundation for doctrine and life in the church, which is the title we've chosen for our summertime series of this letter. As we le- thank you, Vijay. I have a drink already, but thank you again. As we learn and understand the Apostles' teaching here, we have a great need in our church to build on the doctrine and the life described by the inspired Apostle. To ourselves here at Woodside Community Church, in order to strengthen and grow a Christian community that will be stable, productive, and fruitful, for the kingdom of God, holding forth the word of life to our families, our community, and our city. Last week, Elder Mike Moultrie spoke about the plague of the false teachers that were threatening the young church at Ephesus, which is a city located in Asia Minor, founded in the 10th century BC by Greek colonists. It's near the site of the present-day Turkish city of Selchuk. 
One claim to fame of Ephesus was the location there of the Temple of Artemis, or Diana in the Roman pantheon. The Greek goddess of the hunt considered the temple, that is, to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ruins from the Greek and Roman eras remain major tourist and archaeological attractions there today and have been designated a United Nations World Heritage Site. Paul had likely founded the fledgling church on his second missionary journey, and he spent some two or three years there during his third missionary journey, teaching the new believers in Jesus and establishing the church's organization and functioning. Some five years later, Paul gave a farewell address to the Ephesian elders, which were the leadership group of the church, as he was journeying past their location. And he knew that he would never be able to return there in person. So he summoned the elders to himself, and he admonished them in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. He said, therefore, to the elders, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Yet, in spite of this hopeful statement, Paul also feared for the future of the church there, as he had previously told the elders in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. He said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know, Paul said, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So now, in our passage last week, we saw that Paul's fears had already become realized. And he charged his co-worker Timothy to act quickly, to guard the truth, and to stamp out any developing faction of these dangerous false teachers, fierce wolves, as Paul had labeled them, who had begun to spread pernicious and dangerous doctrines among the people there. So this introduction leads us to our text today in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pray a moment. As I read it, I want you to pay close attention, because these are the most important words. These are the words for our congregation from the inspired word of God. The purpose of my words is going to be explaining and opening up these words to you. And I want you to look and see that I really do that. So now let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, where Paul wrote, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly. In unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, uh, we have this text before us. It's weighty. It's packed with important, necessary truths. Uh, I hardly feel capable of doing it justice. But I pray uh, for your help, both as speaker and for all of us as hearers, to hear the heart and the mind of Paul as they communicate with us. What is it that happened in Paul's life that changed him from persecutor to apostle? What is it? And what is it that could change us today? So please help us, help me be accurate as we listen to your word. For Jesus' name and sake we pray. Amen. So we'll examine this text today under two main headings that are in your outline. I provided an outline for you with some fill-in-the-blanks, um, and so I think you'll have no trouble following along with me in that outline. Two, two main headings that flow naturally from Paul's statements. The first will be Paul, Apostle of Grace. And the second, Christ Jesus, the Savior of sinners. In contrast to the ignorant, self-appointed teachers of the law that Timothy was to rebuke, and who were preaching the law of Moses and proclaiming the salvation of men by law-keeping, Paul was appointed by Jesus himself, as we read earlier in our scripture reading. And he was characterized preeminently as the preacher of grace. And, the self, and of the salvation of sinners by Christ Jesus. Our two headings reflect these facts. Both the false teachers of the law who taught God's true law, but for the wrong audience, and Paul, the apostle of grace, agreed in their assessment of the need for sinful men to be reconciled to God and delivered from both the guilt and the ongoing dominion of their sins. Man's universal problem, our universal problem, yours and mine, has always been our sinfulness. This sad state of affairs has ruled over all persons without exception. As Paul stated in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he wrote, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then in verse 19 in that same chapter, he summarizes and says, Every mouth will be stopped, and the whole world will be held accountable to God. No one righteous, not one. No one who understands. Every mouth stopped, the whole world accountable to God. Paul categorized or cataloged the various behaviors of men in this letter of 1 Timothy just before our text in verses 9 and 10. Please look up there. Where he showed that people are corrupted by sin in all their faculties. He accused men as lawless and disobedient, 
ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. But the false teachers were assuming that the solution to men's true true sin problem was law-keeping. Their diagnosis of the problem was correct, but their solution was not. The law, even the good law of God, could not rescue men from their sin because it was weakened by their sinful nature. The difficulty lay in men's hearts, not in God's law, which is holy, just, and good. Please note carefully from our text that Paul's gospel also agrees with this assessment of the problem. The long list of evil behaviors in verses 9 and 10 are as opposed by his gospel as by God's law. Paul goes on to say that these evil actions of people and all other actions like them were contrary to the gospel he had received from Jesus just as they were in violation of the law of God. He said of them in verse 10, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. But the solution to this problem of universal sinfulness was not teaching law-keeping to these law-breaking sinners, nor is it our solution today, even though we must be brought to live in accordance with the unchanging moral law of God, given at creation in man's conscience and on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai, written by the finger, the very finger of God. The attempted use of the law as the solution for lawbreakers is fundamentally flawed, not due to any flaw in the law, but due to the tremendous flaw of the universal and all-reaching sinfulness of every man woman and child. Before we move on to the solution put forward by Paul, let's just dwell for a moment again on this awful list of sinful deeds we just read in verses 9 and 10. Let's read it again. He said, men are lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, those who strike their father and mother, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. And then in verse 10, he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, perhaps you look upon this list, some of you, in the knowledge of your past or even your present life, and you must sadly but honestly say, I'm guilty as charged. This will actually be true of most of us. Or perhaps you could say, in agreement with your conscience, I have kept myself from all these forms of gross iniquity. Well, that may be true, but I want to caution you that the law of God deals not merely with outside behaviors of these extreme kinds, but it probes deeply into the thoughts and intents of the inner woman or man. The law of God is spiritual, those who appear moral to others or even to their own consciences may find very differently when they encounter Jesus Christ and his teaching. We have been studying the Gospel of Matthew in our Sunday school 
And one of the most important lessons we have learned is that an encounter with Jesus must inevitably reveal the true spiritual condition of a person. Let me show you how such an encounter worked in one specific case. There was a young man among the Jewish contemporaries of Jesus who grew up as a devout member of Israel, a lover of God's law, and one who had sought and seemingly succeeded to keep it for his entire life as he grew up and learned it. The man had advanced far in his life of piety, and he was recognized as a leader among his community. He held a place of authority in the spiritual congregation of which he was a part. When he heard about the controversial new teacher of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, he wanted to come to him to receive his stamp of approval on the moral excellence of his own life. So this man approached Jesus one day and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded to him, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus enumerated the second of those stone tablets of the law given at Mount Sinai, and he added his own summary of loving neighbor as self. Well, the man replied to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? Let's assume he was telling the honest truth. But perhaps some vague twinge of conscience troubled this pious man. But the encounter did not end with the man's self-assessment. Jesus, the living embodiment of the law of God, looked deeply into the man's inner being and assessed him. Jesus, even while evaluating him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the deflated young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. No further mention of this disillusioned man appears anywhere in the gospel accounts. In just a few words, Jesus proved to the man, and the man's response proved to himself that he had not really inwardly loved his neighbor as himself. He loved his neighbor only to the extent that he could maintain his own higher material standard of living and his own more privileged social status than his neighbor. The spiritual nature of the law of God applied by Jesus revealed this man's true moral character, as it must also reveal ours when we encounter Jesus. Well, what then is the solution for sinful men and women like this wealthy young Israelite, or like the Gentile converts in the fledgling church at Ephesus, or like the sin-besotted men and women of our day in this place, in this city? The solution can only be found in the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And that gospel was entrusted by Christ to Paul. So now reading into our text in verse 12, Paul said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
Saul of Tarsus, which was the Jewish given name of Paul in his early life, along with the, place, the name of his place of residence, was very much like that pious young man who walked away from Jesus, whom we just read about. Paul, or Saul had excelled in Judaism far beyond his peers. He was unparalleled in his zest for the tradition of his fathers, and he was apparently blameless in his observation or observance of God's law. He enjoyed the benefit of studying under the most celebrated Jewish teacher of his day. We read the account of his conversion earlier in our scripture reading. But Saul's encounter with Jesus along the road to Damascus revealed the true inner moral character. And he was completely undone by the encounter. Saul had had sufficient strength in himself to persecute the church. But after his conversion... After three days of intense struggle inside, during which he neither ate nor drank, while seeking to understand how he could have so misguided himself, he became now the Apostle Paul, appointed by Jesus to go before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And he needed the strength of Christ to help build the church. Jesus chose Paul as Apostle for profoundly wise reasons some of which are recorded in this text. We see in verse 13, Paul admits and says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Saul, the Pharisee, as a blasphemer, sought to defame and execrate the name of Christ Jesus. As a persecutor, he set himself to oppose Jesus and his followers, and even sought to kill Christ Jesus in the person of those followers. We read in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and that he was journeying to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, where they would face the penalty of death, if they did not forsake their newly established allegiance to Christ Jesus. Saul said he was an insolent or violent opponent of Jesus. If you know the English word hubris, here it is, letter for letter. This is its origin in the Greek language. He was a man of hubris. The ancient Greeks used that word to designate a man who sinfully overestimates his own powers and exaggerates his own claims who is insolent in word and deed in relation to the gods and men. The sense is that of overweening pride or arrogance. Eventually in classic Greek drama, the balancing power of nemesis would cause the tragic and total downfall of such a person. And Paul confessed this about himself. About this confession, the 4th century Greek writer Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, wrote, Paul pointed out to all, to all the deeds he had dared to commit before. He thought that it was better for his former life to be publicized to all in order to make evident the greatness of the gift of God than to cover up his ineffable and indescribable mercy by shrinking from proclaiming his sin to all. By the way, historically, Chrysostom has been lauded by Christian writers as the one who actually destroyed the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, although there's really no historical backing 
for that claim. Well, such was Saul. But in verse 14, we read that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, for Saul, or Paul, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Saul of Tarsus was saved by overflowing grace, as we read. And he became the great Paul, apostle to the Gentiles, messenger of grace. Grace describes favor or kindness to a desperately needy but undeserving recipient. Our English word charity comes from the same linguistic root. This grace or undeserved kindness came to Paul as a needy recipient. Its source was in the great heart and unfathomable mercy of Christ Jesus. Who would have expected that Jesus would choose to convert and save his greatest human enemy? This this grace provides for his chosen recipients what they cannot provide for themselves and what they do not deserve. In fact, even contrary to what they do deserve. In this case, spiritual life in exchange for spiritual death. And notice Notice how this grace overflowed. The pit of Saul's wretched sinfulness and guilt, his blasphemy, his violence, his arrogance, his persecution, his insolence, and yes, his hubris, was very deep. But the grace of Jesus was deeper and higher still, enough to cover over the wound of sin as a mighty ocean wave covers over the insignificant low-profile features of a shoreline, and it was enough to bring the wellness of life and righteousness to Paul. And not only did grace overflow, but love overflowed also. Love in Christ for Paul and faithfulness in Christ to Paul, even in the most costly way possible, hence leading Paul to love Christ and trust in him. Paul, of all men, knew that the saying he was now to introduce to us was worthy to be accepted by any sinner who has ears to hear. Paul, in your outline now, the apostle of grace gives testimony to Christ Jesus, Savior of sinners. So let's read in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In the Greek language in which Paul wrote, the order of words in a sentence determines their emphasis. In this sentence, the first word stands as a beacon, trustworthy. Now, we all search for truth we can rely on, and people we can rely on, and those that prove their dependability over long periods of time and in various circumstances. And sadly, we all know the painful disappointment of being let down when we have counted on others who are not worthy of that trust. But here is a saying on which Paul did, and we can, build our lives and our futures, and it will remain unmoved. For God is true, though every man proved to be a liar. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the statement deserves acceptance, Paul said. So it should be accepted. In fact, you should accept it. Because it has been proven in the most difficult case, that of Paul himself. You should accept it, if you have wisdom. 
because wisdom entails searching out and clinging to the ultimate purpose and destiny of your life and meeting your very greatest need. No other saying touches you in your vital interest and as directly and deeply as does this saying. Messiah, the Savior, the Chosen One, Jesus, came into the world with a mission that impacts upon all the woeful, lost children of men. And he accomplished that mission to the uttermost, to save sinners. This statement succinctly summarizes the mission of Jesus by answering us typical questions of who, why, what, and how he accomplished his task and for whom. So let's look at those questions. Who does it describe? It describes Messiah Jesus, who had been promised since sin entered the world as the seed of the woman who would crush a serpent. He had been predicted and foretold and described by the Hebrew prophets. He had been imaged and shadowed out by the system of sacrifices and rituals of the Jewish temple worship and religious service. He had been longed for by the spiritually self-aware of all ages of the nation's history. Why did he come? He came for the salvation of sinners. Hmm. Now that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Human literature is filled with stories of great heroes who strove against all odds to save their loved ones or the innocent or important ones. Not so with Jesus. He strove to save the most unworthy, the most defiled, those that had no redeeming qualities at all and no worth in themselves. Paul earlier said in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one scarcely will die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, how did he accomplish that mission? He did so by coming as a substitute for sinners in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He came to accomplish what sinners, what you and I, could not, to earn the perfect righteousness that is required for men to relate to the perfectly righteous God. First, by coming into the world, that is, incarnating or taking on flesh, the divine Son of God, ever blessed and honored, left his unchanging peace and security in the eternal world to enter into the sad history of this world with its fallen race of God's enemies. And he came into this world with a single-minded focus, and he was constrained until that purpose should be accomplished. Hebrews 5.5 tells us, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. A body was prepared for him. At Christ's incarnation, divinity mysteriously united itself with human nature in one divine human person so as to be able to act as a mediator or peacemaker between God and man. A mediator or go-between must have ability to represent both parties that require reconciliation 
Hebrews 2.14 tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So by his incarnation, then by his life, Jesus lived out a perfect holiness and obedience to the divine law that we have each so trampled. He never sinned once in thought, word, or deed. This was an unexampled spectacle of a perfectly sinless man. Hebrews 7.26 says it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So in his incarnation, in his life, he was a substitute, and in his death, he was a substitute. In his death, he absorbed all of the wrath and punishment due to the sins of his people, drinking the cup of the wrath of God down to the very last drop. 1 Peter 3.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He himself offered himself as a substitute, as a sin offering, once for all, to receive and take upon himself the due penalty decreed by the law of God for the sins of all those who would believe in him. And finally, Jesus was our substitute, and in his resurrection he emerged victorious and fully vindicated, having won eternal redemption for all who would commit themselves to him. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There could be no question of remaining guilt and due penalty to the redeemed children of God following the clear testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And the apostle Peter later testified to the same saving role of the resurrection of our substitute Jesus. 1 Peter 1.3, I believe this was read already. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So here, the entire gospel has been packed into this one verse. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The divine Son of God took on human nature, 
came into the world to live perfectly, obeying the law of God in its most rigorous and spiritual inward meaning, meaning dying wretchedly, cursed, and bearing the sin of sinners, even as it were being made sin for them, resurrected to everlasting life to show that the payment for sin he made had fully paid its penalty, and now living forever to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Well, what is the extent of Jesus' saving work? We see in this passage that he saved even the most prominent sinner in Paul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul was foremost. The word translated foremost could variously mean something like first, spatially, like I'm in front of you all. Or it could mean first chronologically, such as being the firstborn before others. Or likely as it is here, it means something like most eminent or most important. Paul was not claiming necessarily that he had committed more sins or worse sins than others, but he was an eminent example of sinfulness, and Jesus saved him in spite of himself. I'm so glad that I can testify today to you to the broadness of this gospel message. No one here need be disqualified because of the extent and depth of their sin. No sinner is excluded except the one who continues doggedly in his unbelief and willing and guilty resistance. Since if Paul could be saved, then so could we. But why did Jesus choose Paul as the object of his saving work? Was it because of some special qualification or hidden talent or unusual potential in Paul? No. Look at verse 16. Paul said, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know, a peculiarity of our human mentality is that we often need to see truths embedded in tangible form. We need examples, models, instances of theoretical concepts before we can fully understand them and embrace them as our own. Show me what this looks like. You heard someone say that. Paul's conversion speaks as a model to each lost sinner today, and he provides a picture, or as we may say, a prototype of this great salvation. In fact, Paul claims in a very real way, the salvation is for you and for me, his conversion. Paul makes an argument from greater to lesser. If the most eminent of sinners can be saved, then would any of us want to insult the Savior or picture ourselves as more important than Saul of Tarsus and think that we were too deeply stained to be redeemed? Do not think so highly of your sin and so little of Christ Jesus. And marvel at Christ's complete complete patience for his chosen. He remained patient while Saul persecuted the followers of Jesus unto bloodshed. Similarly, he has been patient with you. Some of you may be thinking not just that you've gone too deeply into sin, but that you've gone too long into sin. Some of those here may have gone blindly on their course of sin 20, 30, 40, 50, dare I say even 60 or 70 years. I'm looking around to see who might be the oldest person here. Christ's patience is sufficient. It accomplishes its goal. If he waited patiently for Paul, 
to complete the full years of his wretched life of blasphemy and persecution. He has similarly endured patiently in the case of all those he will receive if they truly come to him. Well, how does one receive this salvation? We must make no mistake at this crucial point. Verse 16 has already told us Jesus Christ would display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The instrumental cause of salvation is faith. Faith is, as it were, a grasping tool we need to take up and gain hold on this Savior to receive this eternal life. The grasping tool is uniformly described in the Bible as faith. There must be belief on him to receive eternal life. But, and here I ask everyone once more to focus their most careful attention for the last time. That faith or belief must be of the type that would be recognized as described in the Bible and as modeled in the life of Paul. This saving faith goes far beyond mere knowledge. Also, far beyond mere believing reception of the historical facts about Messiah Jesus recorded in the Bible. This faith can be thought of as a two-headed coin because it is coupled in the Bible with the concept of repentance. That is, saving faith is both a turning toward and a turning from. And these are the two sides of one coin. The turning toward God in Christ with hearty belief represents one side of saving faith. But, and equally important, the turning away from sin with repentance is inseparably the flip side of the one gracious movement of faith. There is no saving faith without saving repentance. And saving repentance begins with a change of mind concerning God and sin, and it necessarily results in a change of life toward righteousness. Not perfectly, certainly not at first, but progressively and truly deeply in the heart. We can and we must begin the process of forsaking our sins of all kinds as we come increasingly to understand and recognize them in the lifelong process of sanctification, that is, progress in righteousness. And this process will one day be complete when we arrive in a final state where, we, where sin can no longer reach us. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, it does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The Apostle Paul again serves as our example and model of both these aspects of saving faith as we have seen in his conversion experience and subsequent life. And this was summarized by the questions he asked when he was blinded by the brilliant light that came from heaven. He asked, who are you, Lord? That is, so that I can believe in you. And what would you have me to do? That is, what must be changed in my life to make it acceptable to you? Following his conversion, writing his letters to the churches, Paul frequently referred to himself as a slave of Christ. In fact, that may be the best description of a Christian in the entire Bible. All Christians are slaves 
of Christ Jesus. But wait, you say, isn't slavery bad? Friends, the truth is that everyone is a slave. The question is, would you rather be a love slave to Jesus or a bond slave to sin? The wages of that second kind of slavery is death and eternal destruction. Finally, in verse 17, Paul breaks forth in a doxology. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice that the memory of the gracious salvation that Christ Jesus sovereignly bestowed on Paul caused him to break forth into an all-encompassing doxology, words of praise, glory, and honor to the one to whom he now belonged. You know, Paul never got beyond his amazement that Jesus would choose to save one such as himself. He praises God who is king of ages, not in a generic sense merely, but king for Paul personally. While he marvels at the immortality of God, and his, he now expresses his gratitude that immortality in the blessed day of eternity will be shared with those redeemed by Jesus. Paul knew that God was spirit and invisible and has never been seen by human eyes, but God incarnated and made flesh in the divine human person of Jesus Christ has indeed been seen by Paul on the road to Damascus, and he would be seen by him in the life to come. This God, Paul said, is the only God, and to him be honor and glory forever and ever. And Paul closes, as might all the redeemed saints, with amen. So in closing, we've walked through this text under two headings. Paul, apostle of grace, and Christ Jesus, savior of sinners. Only grace, not law-keeping, can solve the compounded corruption of sin in the human heart. Only Christ Jesus has earned and can provide grace to the needy souls. If you think about it, there can be only two responses to such wonderful good news. The first is his acceptance and personal embrace, as Saul did, becoming Paul, leading to life eternal and ever-increasing joy in the kingdom of God. I'm so grateful to God that many of us have fled to Christ Jesus for refuge from the wrath of God, and indeed, indeed we found him and his kingdom to be a surpassing great treasure, for which no sacrifice is too great a price to pay for its possession. He has put away our sins from us and our guilt as far as the east is from the west and their power increasingly. May God give grace to each person present here as he did to blasphemous persecuting Paul to embrace by faith this gracious offer of the gospel. But the second possible response, the tragic rejection of Jesus results at last in inevitable and everlasting destruction, in judgment and total loss. Who can describe the misery of those who spurn gospel offers now of grace and run on madly in the course of their suicidal rebellion against God, as Saul would have done if Jesus had not knocked him off his horse that fateful day? If there are any such here today, rejectors of Christ, may God take mercy upon you, as he did upon Saul. The worst sinners can become the most eminent saints. Persecutors can become promoters. Might you today be such a one as Saul? If so, do not delay even another day before you become the certain possessor of this Christ Jesus who came to save sinners. Would you pray with me? 
Our Heavenly Father, my words are finished. The words of Paul, the inspired apostle, were the important ones. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the solution for man's sin problem. May you graciously find some today to have that problem applied to their, their lives, that they might find Christ, the treasure of surpassing great value. Amen.